and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. This is a dope episode. This is a special episode. This is actually um, something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. My father was very close with uh, the mother or matriarch of one of these great families we're going to talk about today. But we have with us a great author in his own right, Santi Holly. How are you, man? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me on here. What part of the world are you in? Say it again? What part of the world are you in? Oh, I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, LA. It's early out there for y'all. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for... Yeah, yeah. My pleasure. You know. <laughs> for sure. We start each one of our shows by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. Talk us through your various stops in your journalistic career. And when did you realize you wanted to be a writer? And what keeps you engaged and passionate about the work you do? Yeah. You know what? I've actually always known I wanted to be a writer. I mean, since way back when I was a kid, you know, making up stories uh, making up situations, making up characters. And uh, it took me a while to really figure out what kind of writer I wanted to be. You know what I mean? Like I, I you know, I, I dabbled in short stories and I tried my hand at a few novels. Uh, nothing ever came of that. And then eventually I found, you know, if I wrote about myself and I wrote about the people around me, you know, in a sort of nonfiction, journalistic, essayistic sort of way, um, Mm -hmm. I had more success and I really enjoyed it more rather than just talking about my, you know, rather than trying to make up things. I was just talking about the people who I was meeting and people who I was interacting with. And so eventually I just sort of stayed on that path. Um, you know, I had some success as a journalist, as a freelance journalist, uh, and then sort of just it kind of just went from there, you know, sort of bigger and bigger. And I started, you know, thinking about, oh, I could I could write a book, you know, I could write this or that. Um, but yeah, and I always wanted to be a writer. Just, it took me, you know, a minute to figure out exactly what that looked like, you know, cause I didn't really have, there's not a lot of writers I knew, uh, you know, I interacted with. So I sort of had to like find my own way for a while, but yeah, man, eventually, you know, I figured it out and found my way and, you know, here we are. Let's dig into your book. The reason you're here, the Shakurs, an American family and the nation they created. Um, first for people who don't know any Shakurs other than Tupac. And we've we've actually talked about this Hulu special, which is the dopest special that I've seen put out in a long time. Who's the book about and why did you write the book? Yeah, the book is about the I mean, it's, it's it is about the Shakur family, uh, but it's really more than that. It's about the times in which they lived, uh, the things that they survived, the things that they, uh, you know, inspired as far as leaders in various Black Liberation groups like the Panthers, the Black Liberation Army, Republic of New Africa. I mean, there's all these different Black liberation organizations and groups that the Shakurs were really at the forefront of. And so I, I wanted to use them and what they did in their work as sort of just a catalyst for exploring this history that, you know, not a lot of folks really know this history. I mean, some people sort of know about the Black Panthers or at least a little bit about Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, but they don't know the scope of, you know, the Panthers nationwide. And the Shakurs were Panthers in New York City and they did things in their own way. They had their own way, you know, their own way of doing things as Panthers, uh, which didn't always jibe with what was going on in the West Coast. Um, but yeah, it's just a rich history of this of this prominent family. I mean, I like I like to call them the black, you know, the the, the first family of Black liberation because they were really influential and people really looked up to them, and people, uh, you know, looked to the Shakurs in the, in the late '60s and '70s as leaders. And uh, so I wanted to sort of show that his history, show the family and like who they influenced and also all the things that they experienced and suffered and sacrificed, you know, in the name of, you know, black freedom, black liberation. Let's unpack the family a bit and understand who Afini, Lumumba, Matulu and Asada Shakur were. 
who were they and how central are they to the book and who and who's exactly actually related to who? Yeah, you know, that's that's the thing is uh, the Shakur family, you know, I've, I've had to tell people, you know, like uh, the Shakur family isn't a family like we like we know families, you know, they're not related necessarily by blood, by birth. Um, they're related by by common cause, by unity, you know, by joining this this family. They were they were saying, you know, we are we're, you know, with this ride, we're going to ride with you. And um, there was, you know, the patriarch of the Shakur family, his name was Saladin Shakur. He changed his name to Saladin after converting to Islam. Uh, he was an associate of Malcolm X. He's a Pan-Africanist. He's a Black nationalist. And he was really the, 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 the start of the Shakur family. Everybody after him took the name in tribute to the work that he was doing, you know, because he was just this very influential, very just monumental person, very intelligent. Um, and that sort of started, you know, his his two sons took the name Shakur for themselves, Lamumba and Zaid. And then uh, Lamumba Shakur married Afeni, and Afeni took the name Shakur. And Afeni is, of course, Tupac's mother. Um, but then Asada took the name out of out of respect to the family. She wasn't really, you know, she wasn't a relative. She wasn't married. I, I thought she. I always thought she was a relative. Okay. No, she's 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 got no no she's got no she's no relation to the other Shakurs like Saladin and Lamumba or Afeni. Uh, she was a close friend of Zaid Shakur, who was Saladin's son. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a in the other Shakur, Matulu Shakur you mentioned, Matulu Shakur also wasn't a blood relative of the patriarch Saladin. He also took the name out of respect. Like there was a thing that you did if you were serious about the struggle, serious about the fight. You took the name uh, out of respect to the family, and it wasn't something that you just did lightly you didn't just take the name because you liked the way it sounded you thought it sounded cool or whatever but like you were saying i'm committed to the cause i'm committed to this family i'm gonna ride with you and and so you know the people who took that name back in them days were saying i'm joining this family by choice and i'm gonna ride with you for the rest of my life what what was the nation that they created yeah the nation isn't necessarily like a nation state you know as we you know with borders you know, in the, in the central government, a nation is, is what you create. A nation is a, a, a tribe, a movement. You know, the nation that they created is, is this, this community that was really passionate, really committed to, you know, liberation by any means necessary. And they were saying, this is our nation. It's a nation within a nation. Like any sort of oppressed peoples in the U.S. is, you know, a nation within a nation, right? I mean, so they're saying we're not a part of the U.S. We're our own separate nation, this independent black nation who was down for, you know, liberation. Um, and so that's what the nation that they were saying is like, this is our nation, independent of the state, you know, the, the nation state that we live under. This is our own communities, our own family, this is our own nation that we live here. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. 
to find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I mean, you know, I, I'm interested to see I, what's the response from white folk when they read this book, because a lot of the concepts that you are discussing in terms of the, like the, the kind of tangential family, the, the, the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child, kind of that village concept. Those are very native to us and colloquial to us. So what's been the response to people who are not black, who do not understand these concepts so much? How, how have they responded to the book? I mean, uh, so far it's been really positive. You know, like so far, actually, a lot of people have been saying they had no idea about this history at all. None of it. You know, Black Panthers, you know, people didn't you don't really learn about the Panthers in school. You don't learn about Marcus Garvey. You know, like, uh, so every, actually so far, you know, people have been coming up to me and or writing to me and saying, man, like I had no idea about any of this history, you know, like none of this. So like kind of thanking me or for, you know, sharing this history for putting this work out there because it's just this, yeah. I mean, even anybody like, it's just been like, you know, you just don't learn these things and there's no reason why we would. Cause it's not like, it's not a glorious history, you know, that we want to like celebrate. I mean, there's a lot of tragedy. There's a lot of violence in there. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily glorifying anybody. So I think presenting it in sort of just like, this is history, you know, this is just our history. Uh, I think, you know, the, re the reception from white folks and black folks has just been like, bro, I didn't, I didn't even know any of this. And so, you know, now I've learned something. I hope people go pick this up. Can you connect the dots historically between the death of Malcolm X and the hole that it created within black activist circles in New York after 1965? And like how the Shakurs, Lumumba, and, Lumumba Shakur and Saladin Shakur in particular, helped fill that void uh, through their work with the Harlem Black Panthers. Yeah, man. I mean, when Malcolm when Malcolm X was was killed in '65, it did leave, it did leave a void. I mean, it left a huge void. People were just adrift. I mean, he was people had a lot of hope for what he was going to accomplish, and he was still building. So that's the thing is like he was still building. He was still he learning, was changing, and building at the same time. Yeah, I mean, he was still developing. He was still developing philosophically, religiously, ideologically. Uh, and so, and he was like, so he was cut down when he was still building and people were still starting to sort of gravitate towards him because they were getting disillusioned with the civil rights movement, you know, as it was, and they were getting disillusioned with nonviolence and, and uh, uh, integration as like the, the goal of everything. They were just like, no, we need more, like we're struggling, we're dying up here. And so Malcolm X was the person that, you know, he was like, looked at as the savior, as the one who's going to carry us on. And he was cut down and people were just adrift. They didn't know what to do. So that's where Saladin, as an associate in Malcolm X, somebody who worked with him and who knew him personally, people, younger generations, younger folks, younger black folks, uh, looked to Saladin Shakur because he had worked with Malcolm X. He was also a, a follower of Marcus Garvey. So he's been around. He was an elder. Uh, and so younger generations of people who were just sort of just like didn't know where to go they're looking to anybody who is just going to be, you know, help them, help, help teach them, help give them direction. Saladin stepped in and was like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you about Islam and teach you about, you know, black nationalism. Uh, and there were a lot of folks. There was a lot of different folks and organizations that were popping up. I mean, that's really where Huey Newton and Bobby Seale were just like, we want to, they thought they believed that they were carrying on the work that Malcolm X had started. So the Black Panther Party, you know, Huey Newton had said, we believed that we were, you know, carrying on that work that Malcolm, Malcolm X had really like started advocating for, you know, self-defense, uh, independence, self-determination. So there's a lot of people who are just coming up and just saying like, all right, well, Malcolm's gone, but 
we need to continue that work. And that's where Shakur is really, you know, began is right there. What's the discernible difference between the Harlem based Black Panthers and the California based Black Panthers that people seem to be more generally familiar with? Yeah, I mean, California, especially like Huey Newton and, and Bobby Seale, and they were on a much more Marxist Leninist sort of socioeconomic trip of like, you know, we need to talk about uh, 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 not just self-defense and, and self-determination, but also how to change the structure, how to change the capitalist structure. Um, they also worked with a lot of white organizations, a lot of white progressive organizations. They accepted donations and help from white folks. Uh, that was not the West Coast. East Coast in New York, they had their own problems. I mean, they were living, you know, New York City and Harlem and, you know, ghettos and, and, and more urban areas. Uh, and so their needs were just different. They needed help with rent control, with tenants' rights and everything like that. And, you know, people who were hooked on drugs. Uh, and so they really just were much more direct action oriented. Like we got to go out into the community and just do what needs to be done right here rather than theorizing like, you know, West Coast, you know, Huey Newton and them were much more theoretical. Yeah. You know? And East Coast, New York City, they're much more just, no, we needed to put in the work right here and right, right, right now. And there ended up being a real rift with that, you know, a, a rift with the East Coast and West Coast, like we've seen and then we would see years later with, you know, with Tupac and Biggie. But the differences were ideological and, and, and a belief in how we can actually achieve liberation right here and now, you know, and it actually caused a real fatal, uh, fatal rift eventually. Talk about the Panther 21 case and how central that is to the book and how we become or how we've come to know Afeni Shakur Tupac's mother. Yeah, I opened up the book uh, with that trial uh, because it's really pivotal to sort of what happened uh, with the Panthers and with the movement. Uh, after the trial, but the trial really introduced Afeni Shakur to the world, really, because she was it's a young woman. So what happened was, so April 2nd, 1969, uh, over a dozen Panthers were rounded up in early morning raids uh, by the NYPD, by a special unit of the NYPD, accused of conspiring to shoot police officers, bomb various locations throughout the city, um, based on uh, testimonies from police informants that, in, that, that that had infiltrated the Panthers. So they're all rounded up and arrested. Um, Afeni was one of them. And uh, she decided to defend herself. She had no, she had no legal or uh, training at all. Uh, and she just felt like she was the one that was, you know, that could, that could speak for herself more than anybody else in trial. Uh, everybody else had, had their own lawyer, but she alone just decided that like, I'm going to speak for myself, defend myself. Uh, the trial lasted for eight months, longest in New York state history at the time. Uh, you know, just, just accusing them of all, of all sorts of things that they were just sort of talking about, maybe, you know, peripherally talking about wanting to do, but they're accused of conspiracy. So eventually, Afeni was bailed out, uh, by, by money that was raised from supporters. And she, so she was out there free bailed out, uh, helping, you know, give speeches, helping to raise more bail funds for her fellow Panthers. And while she was out on bail, she she was sleeping around a little bit. I mean, she was married to Lumumba, but, but their arrangement was such that, you know, they had just been married for a short time. She's a young woman, she's gotta do what she's gotta do. That's just the nature of the times also, like fidelity wasn't so, you know, strict back then. So she ended up getting pregnant while she was out there. Uh, mm. and then, and then, uh, but she decided to keep the baby 
and then uh, one month after the the Panthers were acquitted of all charges against them, you know, they're all free. They've been out for a month. That's when she gave birth to her her first son, who you know would become Tupac Shakur. And so this was a, was a big moment for the Panthers because it really showed the Panthers that that they were being infiltrated, and that it showed them the extent to, that the the state would go to crush their movement. Um, and it also just it, it just broke them apart. I mean, they had a really strong chapter. The Harlem chapter was one of the strongest Black Panther Party chapters in the U.S. But this decimated them. You know, they they barely you know they barely got through it. They barely got free. And then there's a lot of infighting, and there's a lot of just people who were just disillusioned and just felt like you know what's it worth. And then a lot of these Panthers decided to go underground and join a more radical underground militant group called Black Liberation Army because they're just like we can't do our work above ground in the public eye because we're just going to be infiltrated all the time. So we got to go, you know, anonymous. We got to go underground. And that's really, that started a whole different chapter in, in the, this, this movement. You know, obviously that's a great segue to Tupac. He, he's arguably one of the more, if not the most famous Shakur, but help people understand how this family tree shaped what we saw. Help us reframe Tupac uh, in light of what we now know from your book. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of people are actually just recently in the last couple of years starting to, to reevaluate and look again at, at Tupac's life and lyrics and interviews and words that he was saying and see, like, where did this come from? That's what that's what I, you know, that's what I did. That's sort of what sparked this book. I was just like, man, this dude's deep. Uh, what was he talking about? How did he know about this 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 history? You know, learned about his mother being an influential Black, a Black Panther. And then learned about his stepfather, Matulu, who's also influential, not in the Panthers, but uh, in Republican New Africa, a black nationalist uh, separatist organization. And his whole family, his whole upbringing, he was surrounded by these folks. He was surrounded by, by radical black liberation leaders and organizers, activists. That's how he was, you know, that's how he was born and raised. And that's who really, you know, helped teach him and guide him. And that's like what they expected of him. Like Tupac was expected to be the next generation of, you know, liberation leaders to carry on the torch, to carry on that tradition, um, you know, where the Panthers and everybody fell off in the 70s and early 80s, Tupac was going to keep that going. He was going to get it going, you know, spark it new, uh, get the new Panthers going, you know, get young Black men involved again in politics. That was what he was really reared to do. And, you know, so he always kind of carried that within him. Like even as, you know, his early music, his early raps, you can hear him. He's talking about Panthers. He's talking about, you know, Geronimo Pratt. He's talking about all these like political prisoners. Um, that's what, that, that's what, that was his life. That was his childhood. But, you know, but then he got a little bit of fame. He got a little bit of riches. I mean, he was hungry, you know, up until then, like literally hungry and homeless and starving. And his mother was going through drug, you know, addiction problems. So he just needed to, to eat and, you know, have a home. And so he, you know, was taking jobs and then he's kind of like, liked the attention, liked the celebrity, liked the fame, but he, he did always have that within him. His whole, his whole life, his whole career, he did have that sort of like, you know, uh, that conflict within him. Like, I got to also represent my people here. You know, I can't, I can't let them down. You know, this is how I was raised. I can't let the movement down because he was still surrounded by those folks. I mean, they still came around like elders and every veterans still came around him and were like, Pac, what are you doing? You gotta, you know, what, what's all this thug life? You gotta get back on the path, man. So he's always sort of like, just pulled in two different directions his whole, you know, his whole life. You know, one of the things I appreciate most about 
um, what you did in the book was chronicle the post-movement lives of the Shakurs. And you talked about it at the beginning. I didn't want to get to that question, that it's just fact. I mean, it's not just, you know, pedestal, but it's actually going into the ups and downs. And there's sadly a distinct role that substance abuse, you know, likely driven by the need of self to self-medicate because of years of harassment, surveillance, and trauma. Um, but that played a huge role. Why did you think it was important to provide this dimension of their lives as part of this broader story about the Shakurs? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's a good point because I, you know, they're they're absolutely human. I mean, these folks are like, I mean, they were young when they did all this work. They're young and idealistic, um, didn't know what they were up against, uh, but they just they just wanted to try something. They needed to try something, but they made a lot of mistakes. They made a lot of personal mistakes, a lot of political mistakes. Um, and then they, uh, you know, ended up sort of getting diverted in their cause. And I wanted to show, you know, I didn't want, I didn't want to show that they are perfect, like make them into these these superheroes because they're not. You know, they're just they're just they're fallible human beings who made a lot of mistakes, do a lot of had a lot of victories and a lot of accomplishments, and did a lot of great things, but also made a lot of mistakes. And yeah, like got involved with drugs, with crime, this and that. And I just really wanted to show at the end, it's like, man, these people have been through so much, but that's why we can look to them now as being relatable because, because of their fallibility, because of their humanness, um, you know, they survived, you know, like as a family, as a movement, they went through all this stuff. They went through, you know, they survived drug addiction. They survived COINTELPRO. They survived, you know, all, all these various repressions through state repression. And they, they still, you know, they still influence us today based on, you know, just looking at what they survived and what they were up against. So I wanted to show them just being like, they didn't come out, you know, they didn't come out clean and they didn't come out, you know, spotless or without any injuries. They came out, you know, battered and bruised. And that's that's something that I feel like I wanted to show those bad, you know, those bruises uh, to say, like, they're just human. You know, they were kids. Are there, are there any young Shakurs around? Are there any Shakurs oh. I mean, as a as a family, you look. There's there's a lot of Shakurs around. There's a lot of Shakurs. Um, as uh, not all of them are involved. Not all of them are political. I mean, a lot of them were bo literally born Shakur. They just had the name by birth. I mean, at this point, Shakur is just a, a popular family surname. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of people who are Shakurs who don't even carry the name Shakur. Like you can be a Shakur family member without literally having the name Shakur if you are part of this family, part of the movement. Um, so there's lots of Shakur kids, lots of like cousins and kids and, you know, uh, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to present this book as a complete family genealogy. You know, it's not like I could, I could spend years and years and years trying to track down every single person that calls himself a Shakur that carries the name Shakur, but that's not really what the book is. The book is about this history, about the black liberation history and the black liberation movement, you know, as told through these very seminal Shakurs. And what they, you know, faced and what they what they endured, um, but it's not like you know, it's not a, a, a whole family dynasty history and track down all the ones that because some, you know, some of them just live quiet family lives, you know, they yeah. just live, and that's like that's cool. I'm not going to knock on their door and say, you know, tell me your story. <laughs> Fair enough. The most important question of the interview: um, Where can people find your book, and how can people follow you? Uh, we can find the book everywhere. I think it's, you know, it's it's in, I think, most, if not all, bookstores, major bookstores, independent bookstores. It's online at bookshop.com or Amazon or, you know, wherever wherever you buy books, that's that's where you'll find this one. Um, uh, 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 you can find me 
personally, uh, I have a website, SantiElijahHolly.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram, DJ Elijah Rock. Uh, and I'm on Twitter, Santi Holly. Yeah, and I'm Santi all over. Holly. Thank you so much for joining Bakari Sellers Podcast. I, I hope this book gets banned because you know what happens when they ban books? They start, people start buying them left and right. So I want everybody to go on. That's the first time someone said to me, I hope this book gets banned. Man, this is a good one, man. This is a true story about our history. And I hope everybody goes out and buys it. I appreciate you joining the show today, brother. I appreciate you. <laughs>